You're listening to a sermon from Centerpoint Bathgate, available here each week. We hope you enjoy this talk and join us for more, either online or in person at Simpson Primary School Bathgate, any Sunday morning at half past ten. Good morning, church. Good to see you. Glad that you are along with us today here at Centerpoint as we continue in the Advent season. We are looking at the Christmas story from the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew's perspective. Last week, we looked at the idea that the gift of Jesus was a well-planned gift. And as we're in this Christmas season, there are lots of things, lots of events. I'm guessing your life, kind of like mine, has been on the busy side of the busy spectrum. There's just a lot that's going on. Now, I don't know what it was that you were doing this past Friday night, but at the Corn Exchange in Edinburgh, there was something called the Big, Big Christmas Party. Now, I don't know if anyone happened to make it along to the Big, Big Christmas Party, but if you looked at the list of events, it looked like it was the place to be Friday night. Now, I'm looking at a lot of disappointed faces. It was like me, you're feeling like you missed it. And you look at the list of what was going on there, and it was the big, big Christmas party. Now, when I looked at what was going on, none of it looked particularly Christmassy. I mean, the highlight act was a girl band called the Sugar Honeys, uh, doing 80s and 90s hits. But... The, the colors were all Christmassy, and it looked Christmassy, and so apparently it was the place to be, but I was not there. Now, why wasn't I there? Very simply, I didn't know about it, and I wasn't invited. What we're looking at today as we go to Matthew's Gospel, and we're ramping into this Christmas season, is that Christmas is God's big, big party. Everyone's invited, but to come, people need to be invited. Last week, we saw that Jesus is a well-planned gift that going all the way back to when Adam and Eve sinned, and then with Moses, and there were Abraham, and Moses, and David, God was promising he would send Jesus. Today, we're looking at this idea that Jesus wasn't simply well-planned, but Jesus is a gift for everyone. Now, as we dive into Matthew's gospel here, I'm going to warn you a little bit, but also give you a task as we read this. Matthew hasn't obviously studied great openings to books as they would be taught in a contemporary writing class. Because when you read or study contemporary writing, they'll tell you, you, you've got to have some bam moment right there at the beginning just to draw people in. The introduction's got to be great. Matthew starts with a genealogy. So we're getting ready to read a list of names. So I'm warning you, this may not be the most exciting bit of the Bible that you've read, at least on the surface. But the challenge is to look underneath the surface because there's some Easter eggs hidden in here. There are some things that are intentionally built into this genealogy that unpack for us the big meaning that Matthew is getting to as he explains Christmas. And so I want you to be inquisitive as we're reading a lot of names that you've never even heard before. So Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, as we reflect on this most exciting bit of text that we've just read, the big question is, why is this here? What is Matthew doing? Now, this is a very intentional genealogy. And we bump into a little bit of that in verse 17, where he starts enumerating there's 14 generations in the first group, 14 generations in the second group, 14 generations in the third group. So there are two big numbers that we're thinking about today, the number 14 and the number five. And so this is an intentional genealogy, and the intention of it is, is more obvious when we stand back and, and think about the, the history that Matthew has covered here. Because this first group of, of 14 covers a period of at least eight or 900 years from Abraham to David. And yet Matthew says that this is just 14 generations. And um, those who calculate the number of generations that, that fit into a, a century have recently, I'm not going to bore you with the details, but they've recently done a recalculation. Whereas it used to be that a generation was assumed to be 20 or 25 years, it's now assumed to be 31 or 33 years, especially through the father's line. But even if we expand that, the number of generations in this first group was something like 25 generations. And then we get to this second group, and we notice that Matthew is highlighting all these kings. And so what Matthew is giving us is the, the royal line going from the first king all the way to King David, 
all the way through to the, the last king at the time of the deportation. But again, to get this group of 14, he actually passes over about four names on that list that are right there in the Old Testament. And so he's intentionally skipping some people. And going back to the first list, he's intentionally skipping a lot of people to make this sort of fit this little uh, pattern that he's trying to do. Now, it's true that in genealogies, you could, you could sometimes genealogies will skip a son, and so uh, someone who begets someone else, it's actually their grandson or their great-grandson, but that's a whole lot of skipping to cover eight or nine hundred years with just 14 generations. And then the same thing with the last group. This is about 600 years of history, and Matthew says, yeah, there's just these, these 14 generations there. And so Matthew is obviously not giving us just a list of genealogical details. He's making a theological point. And the theological point is about the identity of Jesus. And he summarizes it when he gets to Matthew chapter 1, verse 17, and he says that from Abraham to David is 14 generations, and from David to the, the captivity was 14 generations, and then this last group was also 14 generations. So it says 14, 14, 14. Now, what is it about 14 that matters? Well, the Hebrew language can involve uh, a technique called gematria, where each letter has a numeric value. And so when we look at Hebrew, we see that the D has a value of four, the V has a value of six, and of course the second D would also have a value of four. So four plus six plus four equals 14. And so when Matthew is saying 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations, he's saying David, David, David. And then we look at the fact that David is the 14th name listed in this genealogy. Matthew's taking this number 14 and saying, David. In other words, he's highlighting the fact. This isn't the list of every single person who came before Jesus. He's highlighting the fact Jesus is the rightful heir of the throne of David. Jesus is the one destined by God to fulfill Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, the one will come who will sit on the throne of David. Jesus is the son of David. That's the first number, the number 14. But there was another number that was in this genealogy, and it was five. This is perhaps the most interesting part of this genealogy, and that is that there are five women mentioned in the genealogy. Now, it was not unheard of to mention women in genealogies back in these ancient times, but it was not customary. And Matthew obviously goes out of his way to give these women a prominent place in his genealogy. Now, the question for us is why would he do that? Why is he writing these women in there? Now, the last one, Mary, this is kind of obvious. Mary gets her name on the list because she's the mother of Jesus. And as you read the rest of the story that we'll look at next week, it's important for us to know who this Mary person is. But there are four other names that were mentioned here before we get to Mary, four other women. And the question is, why are they there? So I want to take just a moment and look at these and want us to think together, what is it that Matthew is trying to say? Now, the first one who's mentioned is a woman named Tamar, and it says that Tamar was the mother of Perez and Zerah, 
by Judah. Now, Judah is famous because he's the, the namesake of one of the tribes of Israel, not just one of the tribes, but the tribe that ended up in the area where Jerusalem was found and the tribe through whom Jesus came. Jesus, who is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Well, this is the Judah from which Jesus got that identity. So Judah's a, a, a big name in the Old Testament. And here, this line of his continues through this woman named Tamar. Now, if you're just reading these, you might think, well, Tamar must have been his wife. It's not quite that simple. You can go back and read in Genesis chapter 38. This is a bit of a complicated story. Tamar actually was the wife of Judah's oldest son. And then he died without having had any children. So according to Jewish custom, Tamar married the second son. He also died without having any children. And then Judah righteously promised to Tamar, okay, you can also marry my third son. But when he came of age, of course, I'm wondering, now how old is Tamar by this time? But by the time he came of age, Judah didn't give him to her. And so here is this woman who's childless. She's been promised this guy doesn't work out. And so she takes matters into her own hands and goes and sets up a little personal roadside brothel. And after Judah's wife has died and he's looking for a good time, seduces him, gets pregnant. And so this line, this Perez and Zerah is from Judah and his daughter-in-law, who he has now made pregnant. So that's a bit of a complicated story. And I've left out some juicy details that you can go read in Genesis 38. Now, the next woman on the list is Rahab. Now, there's only one Rahab that's listed in the Old Testament. And so even though the chronology is a little bit difficult to, to fit together here, most Old Testament commentators believe that, that what Matthew is referring to here is the Rahab that we know from the city of Jericho. Now, Rahab is famous because she shielded the spies and hid the two spies that Moses uh, had sent in to, to spy out the land. And they came back, uh, or Joshua sent them in to spy out the land, and they came back and gave this report. And so she's famous, and she's a heroine in Israel because she saved the spies. But kind of like Tamar, she also comes from a bit of a dodgy background because her job was a harlot, Rahab the harlot. She worked as a prostitute. And so it's interesting here that Matthew's going out of his way, yes, to mention here's Rahab. And then the next woman is Ruth. Now, Ruth, unlike Tamar and Rahab, doesn't have uh, much of a dodgy background, although some commentators wonder what was it that Ruth and Boaz were, were doing there on, on the threshing floor. Um, the, the, the Old Testament language there is, is a, there's a little bit of innuendo in the, the window of text there. Um, so, but Ruth is famous because she was faithful, she was loyal to Naomi, her mother-in-law, and you know, where you go, I will go, and I'm going to be with you and stay with you. And so Ruth is also this great heroine and the, the, the great-grandmother of, of David. And then we get to the next woman, uh, and she's not even mentioned here by name. It just says the wife of Uriah. Now, we know that the wife of Uriah was Bathsheba. And by calling her the wife of Uriah, 
Matthew is highlighting that she's in here because of an adulterous relationship with David. And so the, the Bathsheba story is somewhat famous. She's bathing. David wants her, brings her into the palace. She gets pregnant. He tries to cover it up. The cover-up doesn't work. And so he has her husband killed. And so David commits both adultery and murder, and Bathsheba gets sort of brought into this story, and here she is now in this genealogy as the fourth woman on this list. So these are four interesting women out of Israel's history, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and one question that comes to my mind is, you know, there are lots of other women that Matthew could have picked. I mean, he could have picked these, these great matriarchs, these women like Sarah and Rebecca and Leah and Rachel. Why didn't he pick them? I don't know. But when we look at who he did choose, there seems to be something going on. Now, just looking at their histories, one of the answers that we could give as well the reason that Matthew picked these is because he intentionally picked some sinful people because he wants to show that Jesus came to save his people and his people are sinful. And so if we drop down to verse 21, Matthew 121, we'll see this next week in the Christmas story, we see that the, the angel said, you'll name him Jesus because he'll save his people from his sin. And so we say, aha, the reason that these women are in the story is simply to demonstrate that Jesus came to save sinners. And so for all of us who are sinners, that gives us some degree of comfort because we can identify with that. And that's why the women were there. The only problem with that is that when we read through this list, if we're filtering this list through sin, the women were not the biggest sinners in this list. The biggest sinners in this list were the men. Starting with David, the, the one that Matthew's broadcasting, son of David, David, David. This number 14 comes through. Well, David was a big sinner. Adultery and murder are reasonably high up on the, 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 the sin list. But the thing about David, is that he was not only a big sinner, but he was a big repenter. Even though he sinned audaciously, he repented gloriously, and he never let go of his faith in God. Unfortunately, some of the guys on this list who come after David did not repent as well as David did for their sin. And some of their sin was just bonkers. For example, this king named Joram. Uh, maybe not a guy that you've thought about a lot, but when Joram became king, king of God's people, king in Judah, king of this southern kingdom, king of the place where God's temple was, his first move was to knock off his brother so there wouldn't be any competition for the throne. And then he set up worship to false gods all around the, the Jerusalem area. Not a good way to, to start your, your, your kingship. And so the Old Testament uses this little phrase for these kings, so-and-so, Joram did evil in the sight of the Lord. That's a shorthand way of saying this man was idolatrous and did not repent and turn to God at all, but worshiped and served other gods. And so Joram is here on this list. Then we come to this, this king called Ahaz, for example. 
Now Ahaz, like the, all these kings that are mentioned here, were kings in the southern kingdom. Now, when Ahaz was, was there in the southern kingdom, up in the northern kingdom of Israel, he looked up to the north, and this is where Ahab and, and these other people that in, in the north, they, they, they never worshiped God. If you read through the list of the kings down in Judah, sometimes they were good, sometimes they were bad, but in Israel, all the kings were bad. In other words, they were all idolaters, and he looked longingly up at these northern kingdom kings, and he copied them. He brought in all the idols. He established Baal worship in the temple in Jerusalem. That's bad. That's very bad. And not only that, he, he offered his children, he did child sacrifice. I mean, that's, that's awful. Um, killing your own children to serve this in the name of this false god. And then Manasseh. Manasseh was kind of like that as well. Um, it says about Manasseh, he did more evil than all those who were before him. He became king when he was 12 years old. He was king for 55 years. He was a complete idolater, set up and endorsed the worship of false gods in the temple and in Jerusalem, and also engaged in this practice of child sacrifice, killing his own children to serve this false god. So the problem with saying that the women are in this list to demonstrate that God saves sin, that God saves sinners, is, is not why they're here, because the, the sinniest sinning is, is by the men. These men are really jacked up. They're really messed up. And so when we come back to these women, the big question then, again, is why are these women on this list? Well, if we go back and look at Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba, one of the common characteristics that we notice is that they weren't Israelites. They weren't Jews. Tamar was a Canaanite. Um, Rahab was a Canaanite. Ruth was a Moabite. And Bathsheba was married to a Hittite. In other words, what Matthew has done right here at the very beginning of his story writing in a context when Jews and Gentiles were still trying to figure out what it meant to be Christian together. He is intentionally writing a very big degree of foreignness right here. He's, he's taking a Canaanite and a Canaanite and a Moabite and maybe a Hittite and saying, look, this is where Jesus has come from. The issue, yes, very clearly, Jesus is here to save sinners. But more than that, Jesus isn't just God's gift to the Israeli nation. Jesus is God's gift for everyone. Everyone is welcome to come to the big, big party. Jesus isn't just Israel's Messiah. He's the Messiah of the world. And so these two numbers that run through this passage, the number 14, reminding us, yes, Jesus is the promised Messiah who sits on the throne of David. And Jesus will fulfill all the messianic promises that have been spoken about him. But this other number, this number of women that are written here, simply to demonstrate, Matthew's putting in it here right at the beginning, that Jesus has come not just for Israel, but for the world. If we jump to the end of Matthew's gospel, we see this is exactly how he ends it. 
Jesus says this, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. And so what we see here in chapter one, this foreignness to Israel being written into the story, Jesus makes very explicit by the time we get to the end. Now, for all of us who are Gentiles, this is very good news. At the time that Matthew wrote this, this would have been provocative. Because as we read through the book of Acts and in the early church, we see these early Jewish Christians struggling a bit with this idea that Jesus and, and this gospel can go outside of just who we are. Now, the challenge for us is that we live very thankfully, very thankfully before God for what he has done for us. But we realize that what God has done, it is for us, but it's not just for us. The big, big party that is the kingdom of God, where people can experience peace and forgiveness and life and wholeness and restoration and all the blessings of the gospel. Praise God, he's given it to us. But it's not just for us. It's for the world. This big, big party is for everyone. And Matthew is here inviting us, just like Jesus does at the end of this gospel, to do every can, everything we can, to invite everyone we can to be part of this big, big party, to enjoy the peace, the forgiveness, the life, and all the blessings and benefits that come from being part of the kingdom of God. So Jesus is not only a well-planned gift that God had in his heart from eternity, that this is how he's going to save humanity, Jesus is also a gift for everyone. And the best thing we can do with that gift is to share it with everyone. Let's go to God in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, as we engage a bit of text this morning that on the surface it just seems like a bunch of names, and yet, Lord, we realize that you don't do anything by accident, that these names are there on purpose. You're trying to teach us, Lord, that your grace towards us in Christ, it's for us, but it's not just for us. This big, big party that is the kingdom of God, where we get to experience all the blessings on offer in you. We thank you for it, oh God. But Lord, I also pray in Jesus' name, that we would do what Matthew is implying and what Jesus makes explicit. That we would do everything we can, O oh Lord, so that no one's left out and everyone is invited to the party. Lord, we recognize that at this Christmas season, there are a lot of folk that don't know the reason for the season they have not yet experienced the forgiveness available in Christ, the life available in Christ, the joy of your presence, the overwhelming benefit of your grace. Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that you would empower us during this time to do everything we can, to invite everyone we can to be part 
of the kingdom of God. We ask this, O oh Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.